Good morning. A couple quick announcements. Uh, the, Caring, the Caring Network baby bottle campaign begins today. And if you're not familiar with the Caring Network, that's basically the, the pro-life uh, agency. And uh, well, really, uh, I think it's, a, uh, it's part of a global or a, uh, at least a national network of agencies that try to provide material resources to um, mothers who are at risk for abortion. So people who would say, um, well, I can't afford to have a baby because diapers and, and formula or whatever. And they try to say, well, it's not, don't, don't kill the baby because of diapers. Here's all the diapers you could ever need. And don't do it because of formula, just throwing all these resources. But then also the, it's an evangelical organization, Christian organization that's, that's really trying to ultimately go after the, the soul of the individual. Like, why is this person trying to, uh, wanting, desiring to kill this baby? And just tr story after story of, of, um, of great um, communicating the, the gospel to those who only are trapped in, in, in darkness and see no, no other way out. So um, certainly not Lutheran. Um, they try to be pan-denominational because it's, it's obviously you raise more money when you appeal to all denominations, right? Um, but so there's, there's certain things we might disagree with here and there, but ultimately we're on the same page on, on trying to, uh, to prevent babies from being killed in the womb. So the Caring Network um, connections that we have, have kind of said since the, the laws changed in Illinois or in the, um, not Illinois, but in the surrounding states, there has, everyone kind of thinks now that Roe versus Wade was overturned, um, we've won. And so everyone kind of just stopped supporting Caring Network. But really in Illinois, it hasn't, nothing effectively changed. And um, the, the, the need is certainly still there, but everyone's kind of said, hey, we won. And they've kind of like laid down the swords, um, which is ironic statement. Like, <laughs> um, but so, so it, it, if you're curious about how you can support Caring Network, you can, there's, I think there's links on the week at a glance, but at the very least, the, you grab a baby bottle, you throw in some money. Um, that's actually probably the most inconvenient way to support it, as Pastor Schumacher alluded to. No one carries around that much change anymore. And if you do, you're probably putting it in your LWML mite box, if you even know what that is. So just, if you, if you, if you wanna support something uh, that's pro-life, that agency is, is a good one. Um, and then also the Lay Theology Conference coming up on Saturday, February 11th. Um, we, we haven't had too many people register for that, as many as I'd like. So um, please get, follow the link through the church website. We're just trying to plan for food for the day. But also it's kind of nice to know how many, how, if people aren't registering, we got to push, uh, push harder to, uh, to market this thing. It's a great opportunity for, for you to invite your neighbors to something. Pastor Wolfmuller is, a, is an incredible speaker. If you've ever had a chance to hear him in person, um, or you can find his stuff online. There's links through the week at a glance. You can see his YouTube stuff of, of like Lutherans of the, um, I think he's in his 40s. He's very relevant, very engaging. He came out of Calvary Chapel, I believe, and then the ELCA. But he's, he, he's a great voice for those who are, to whom Lutheranism is foreign, um, but also those who have been Lutheran their whole life and they think it's maybe boring or something. So he, he, he's, he's able to make things very interesting. Um, so even if you can only make it for part of the day, uh, please do. And don't, don't hesitate to register. Come to the morning session, leave, come to the, the afternoon session, whatever. So 
Uh, we, we're going to we starting about eight o'clock on Saturday the 11th with coffee and uh, registration. We'll have worship at 8:30, and then we'll start him speaking at about nine. So if you're like, yeah, let's come at come at nine, get some dietas and a coffee, and then bail at 10. Fine, do that. Right? I think, but I think you won't be disappointed um, with uh, with his with his um, topic and his ability to communicate in an engaging way. And then the previous Saturday, February 4th, uh, at St. John Wheaton is uh, the Finnish bishop coming. So, um, or February 4th at St. John Wheaton, and then he'll be preaching here on the 5th. We do need, uh, as I mentioned last week, people to sign up to help out with coffee, uh, making coffee and stuff. Like, t- like today, um, there was leftover, there's always some event that happened like previous days. So we typically have some pastries or cookies or stuff lying around. Really just need somebody to make, prepare the caffeine uh, to keep you awake and to scare off the Mormons. That's the goal. <laughs> no, no. So let's begin um, with a prayer as we as we get into our Luke 14 and 15, the, the hymn of the day today is actually, um, it's an, so it's an epiphany hymn, Jesus being a light to the, in the darkness, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. But those who are, those who are lost, those who are in darkness, um, hopefully we get to it in Luke 15, this entanglement of those who are uh, in, in darkness. Uh, let us pray. O Christ, our true and only light, enlighten those who sit in night. Let those afar now hear your voice and in your fold with us rejoice. Fill with the radiance of your grace the souls now lost in error's maze. Enlighten those whose inmost minds some dark delusion haunts and blinds. O gently call those gone astray that they may find the saving way. Let every conscience sore oppressed in you find peace and heavenly rest. Shine on the darkened and the cold. Recall the wanderers to your fold. Unite all those who walk apart. Confirm the weak and doubting heart. That they may with us evermore such grace with wondering thanks adore. And endless praise to you be given by all your church in earth and heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beautiful hymn of, of Jesus bringing light to those in darkness, those, this imagery of uh, entangled in errors, errors, maze. I mean, this picture of those in the darkness that are just kind of caught in this web or they're kind of lost in, this, lost in a maze and they can't even see their way out. And that makes sense because without the, without the gospel, without the light of the gospel and without the Lord Jesus bringing faith, through his gospel, how do we expect those in the darkness to see their way out of darkness? And yet, that not that like our, according to our sinful flesh, that's like our knee-jerk frustration. Those pagans and their sinful living and, the, and whatever the mindset of unbelief that they have, um, really, we have more of a heart of mercy. I mean, just to be sure, we're frustrated often with the sin that results from this. Um, or like, why can't they just, why don't they just believe it? I mean, come on. Well, obviously, that's not helpful. It's not up to them. So we, we preach the gospel and the Lord brings faith according to his will. Um, that has us seeing, seeing our neighbors who are trapped in unbelief, those entangled, confused, in darkness. When you're in darkness, you cannot see unless someone brings light. 
So part of the Christian, uh, Christian life is joining together with Jesus as Israel, who is a light to the nations, a bringing a light into this dark world, showing obviously good from evil, truth from false. But what the truth shines is also revealing the problems, why there is death, why there is pain, why there is guilt, because everybody experiences those things, but not everyone knows why they're there. They try to maybe justify it or, or define their way out of it in some other way, but we can shine a light on it very simply and say, we suffer these things because of sin, and what is sin? This brokenness that's broken into this world, but we have a solution to this darkness. So the light that brings a clarity to the problem also brings a solution to the problem. So uh, beautiful imagery there from our hymn of the day today. Luke 14, and hopefully we get into Luke 15, all the lost stuff. So you've got on your handout there uh, a, a fun side with pictures and a boring side. We're going to start with the boring side. Luke 14, the cost of discipleship. Verse, uh, so chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so a, definitely a hard teaching of Jesus, um, often titled the cost of discipleship, where he lays out these entanglements. And um, the commentators um, try to make this, I think, a helpful case that, that at the end of 14, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus talks about the, the next verse I didn't read. I'll just continue there. Salt is good, verse 34. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus didn't say that all the time, and especially in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke records it, he's never writing stuff down on accident. That's only occurred one previous time in Luke thus far, and it's right after the parable of the sower. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus, when he says these things, he's talking about bringing, bringing faith, bringing repentance and, and faith to those who hear. But when you think parable of the sower, remember the seed that's cast. We have some that bear fruit, but not all. Remember, some fall where? On the path, and the devil snatches them up. Some fall among thorns and are choked out. They're entangled in the thorns that choke them out. And then some are in the shallow, uh, the shallow soil, the, the rocky soil, so the roots are not deep. And then the sun of suffering comes up and scorches the plant. So we talked about the parable of sower um, when, we, when we cross that. But really here with the cost of discipleship, it's like Jesus is, is coming back to that 
from a, maybe from a different perspective, but these things that entangle the disciple, um, ch- potentially choking out faith. So the one being, being family or misunderstanding of, of family. Uh, two, bearing one's cross. So you get these, this entanglement in the things of this world as the things of this world versus a gift from God. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But then two, the bearing one's cross, so that as whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. I mean, cross, is it, it doesn't sound like a fun thing. Well, that's the idea. There is suffering in the Christian life. And, and really, as Christians, especially as, with a, as disciples of the Lord who was crucified, what do we expect for our faith but suffering like him? And yet, our expectation is something different, right? Because I'm a, I'm a Christian, God's all-powerful, I'm going to be faithful, and he's going to, he's going to like make sure everything goes my way. Well, ask John the Baptist about that. And he'll tell you, everything did go his way. Because where is he now? He's doing just fine. But on this side of heaven, you know, bearing your, being a disciple does often bring crosses. And then the, all of our possessions, the third entanglement. So family, misunderstanding family, uh, suffering, bearing one's cross, and then all the possessions, the treasures of, of, this, of this life we are to renounce. So um, first, the Lord, so my question is, uh, we'll address the hate father and mother first. I know we started talking about this last week, but it's, it's so seemingly contrary to everything God has said up till now. So he gives... Eve to Adam and as this wonderful gift and they're one flesh and, and then there's, he extols them to, to uh, bear fruit and multiply, to have, to have children and fill the earth. And, and then uh, to further defend the family, he gives the fourth commandment and the 10 commandments later in Exodus and Deuteronomy, which is nothing, obviously that's already been been extolled and supported. It's not like God decided in Exodus, you know what we should do? We should have a law that says, honor your father and mother and not murder and, and all these things. Well, no, it's, the law is always there. It's always been written on the people's heart. And all he did in the Ten Commandments was, was codify it and, and boil it down. But God has instituted family. He's given marriage and he's given to marriage children and family is to be good. And there is love that fills the, these families, love toward one another in the family. And then Jesus, who's like supposed to be the most loving of all, he's like, well, unless you, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, what, ah, how, do you, how do you deal with that? So first, uh, the, Lord, the Lord has given us the relationships of father and mother, husband and wife, children, brothers and sisters, and they have given to us, he has given them to us as gifts, as good gifts. So what went wrong? When did these relationships ultimately break? At the fall into sin, we see, I mean, obviously the, easy, the easiest answer to everything is sin is the ultimate problem, but let's, let's apply it um, specifically to like, the, we'll start with the Garden of Eden. Um, so now Eve is right away blamed. So Adam gets asked about, why did you eat the fruit? Are you, who told you you were naked? Well, the woman. So all of a sudden, marriages are breaking, breaking down. Um, and so as, insofar as we are Christian, in our Christian self, we are given to see God as the giver of gifts. 
And all the, all the people in our lives are, have been given to us as a gift from him. And they have full value. And their importance to us is determined by the fact that God created them and he has placed them in my life to love and serve, period. But in our sinful flesh, oftentimes we only, we only care about people or we, or we give people our time, or our interest, or our, our love based on what we can get out of them. So it's a selfish, a more narcissistic and self-pleasing view of other people around us. And um, this is at least one of my... Um, one of the commentators I was most, most impressed by was this, was this view of, of our sin has us tearing apart our families because we start seeing everyone else in our family not as a gift in and of themselves for us to love, but rather what we are supposed to be getting out of them. So my, my children should be serving me in such a way and pleasing me in such a way, and, and if they don't act a certain way, then they're dead to me. My parents... Um, my parents should be treating me a certain way or doing things a certain way toward me. Um, and I, I would just, I would love them more if they would do certain things. So everything is this narcissistic self-view. Um, Luther called belly gazing. Like it's all about me and how everyone else is supposed to be serving toward me. And then I'll love them based on how they treat me or what I can get out of them. So it's selfish ultimately because the first commandment to have no other gods we want to be God. We want to be the center of the universe. We want everybody ultimately serving us. We want everything our way. And so if that's the way you want it, then Jesus has to teach you to hate your father and mother in that way. You hate, you hate your wife and your brothers and sisters. If it's up to what, they, what you can get out of them, then, then Jesus wants to shatter that idol and shatter that view of the relationship so that he can give them back to us as a gift only. So we're to love, our, love all these people, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, not at all for what we can get out of them or for what they deserve or what, um, what they've done to us and we're reciprocating love, but rather simply because God has given them to us as a gift, period. And that's what the law calls us to do is to love our neighbor it, totally selflessly, so there's a, how are, we to, how are we to love our family rightly on your handout? Um, in loving the Lord, our God only, we can then look around us. We can see our neighbor, our father, our mother, our husband, wife, children, our earthly goods, and we can love them. But we no longer love them as possessions, that is things that belong to us. We no longer love them because of what good they are to us and what we can get out of them. We no longer love them because we can control them or manipulate them. As a man loves a possession, he can do with as he pleases. But we love them as what they are, as gifts from the Lord our God. So it starts with this right love of God and Him only. And therefore, especially as we see the picture in the, in the, in the, throughout the Scriptures, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, Rachel was loved, Leah was hated. It's not that God actually hated Esau in the way that we often think about hate as this violent disposition towards something, but rather it's an order of preference. So for Jacob loves Esau more for some reason. He shows this, fa this prioritization, a favor, a, a favor. Maybe that's the best word there. God's showing favor towards something. So when I'm favoring God 
over all these other things. So it necessarily, my father, mother, uh, wife, children, brothers and sisters, all of that is, the, the Greek way of thinking is hated. That is not favored in the way that I favor God. Because when push comes to shove, if my family is trying to tell me not to worship Jesus or starting to get in the way of my vertical relationship with God, which has to go? Right? So, so there, there it's, when, it's when, they, when, when they're put in competition with one another is where it's easy to see the hate, how, how hate can rightly be understood by, by favor. But the Lord shatters all that way of thinking and he gives himself to us as a gift. So we love him most over all things. And then it changes the way we see everything else. Everything else is given to us as a gift. That is to be loved as a gift. And, the, and the, maybe the, a good example of this would be like, um, so Annabelle asked me this question um, a couple of days ago. She's like, Dad, um, who do you love more? <laughs> Mommy or me and Everly and Sadie? <sighs> so like, well, obviously your wife, my, my wife, go away. Um, no, but so I say, I, I love you all in the way that God has given, given you to me to love. And I said that in a way that is understood by children. I love you because you're my child. I love mommy because she's my wife. So I love all of these things according to their often, according to the gift, the giftedness to me. So it's not an order of, I love, I love God more than my wife or my children, but rather I love my wife as a gift from God who I love. Does that make sense? So I'm able to describe all these relationships and the horizontal life by their relationship to the, the one I love most, God the Father. So I'm, I'm seeing, so God loves me, I love him. But so now dad, do, do you love Jesus more than you love me? No, I love you because I love Jesus and Jesus has given you to me. So everything is seen through this view of God has given me everything as a gift. So now I'm not stacking up people around me of who I love more because of, what they've done to me or, or like how I, what I can get out of them or however I want to go at it sinfully. Now I'm able to say, no, I love everyone in this life, not more or less, but according to how they've been given to me. So I love my parents uniquely as my parents, not more or less than, but in a unique way then I can't love my parents in the same way that I love my children. I can't even like rank that. It's different. And, and all of us have that same way. So we love our neighbors. And so on the one hand, like some neighbors are easier to love than others. And according to our sinful flesh. So I got, you got the neighbor who comes in and like shovels your sidewalk all the time, without, unprompted. Like you love that guy. And the other guy never does anything. He never cuts his grass. Come on, the dogs always go to the bathroom in your yard. <laughs> I'm that guy, no. Uh, but so now we're, we're given to love our neighbors, not, not based on the way that they're treating us, but because they are our neighbors. So I'm loving my neighbors equally in that way. That is actual neighbors in, the, in your cul-de-sac or whatever. Um, 
Next paragraph here. Jesus has reordered our lives. What before entangled us, that which before we loved because it was our possession under our control, those we loved because of the value we determined they were to us, all of that is left behind. Jesus has reordered our lives. He has reordered our lives, disentangled us from all false love, all love that would treat people and things as possessions. And he has given us the good ordering of his father, letting us receive then our neighbor, our families, our stuff, even our own lives, not as simple possessions we are to control and manipulate or use narcissistically, but as holy gifts. So now all the stuff in my life, all my possessions, I can recognize God has given me these things. And when I stop seeing them in that way, they become my idols that I control, that I somehow, I I have earned these things, I have won them, they're for me to use and determine what's gonna happen to them. But rather, um, everything that I have, everything I don't have is coming to me as gift. So to have, to have such a view, though, is to, so to see then everything in my life as a gift from God ultimately has God as God and not all these other things. And that is in itself kind of a cross because what's happening here, God, as he says, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Why? Because if you're not... If you're not his disciple, then you're necessarily somebody else's disciple, even your own. So you're either his disciple or your own. Or you're, you're following your own, your own gut, your own interests, your own teaching, or the teaching of maybe somebody else. So to be his disciple means that we're not, we have a, a right ordering of all these other relationships in our, our marriages and our families and, and so forth. So he makes us his disciples, even in, in giving us this parable or this, this teaching, he shatters our idols. And he's doing that to us every Sunday, right? Every, or whenever we're reading God's word, he's constantly shattering our idols, uh, shining a light on our, false, on our false gods, the things that we're loving more than him, putting our fear, love, and trust in more than him. And so the Christian life then is part of the cross that we bear is this a fight against that sinful flesh that's wanting to have all these things higher than God or we're fearing, loving, and trusting in these other things other than God. So we, we put that sinful self to death daily and we're following Jesus. And then we fail, but that's the life of the saint, the saint sinner, right? And so he says uh, to take up our cross and follow me. So what does it mean to take up our cross? There's number two on your handout. We take up our cross in the promise of baptism, daily the old man of sin and self-righteousness is put to death and the new man of faith stands up to live in our Lord's righteousness and purity forever. And as our Lord who baptized us sends us out into our world, into our lives, sending us out as his disciples to our neighbor, to our families, to our loved ones, we now look upon them as gifts from the Lord our God and our Lord honors us by setting us before them as his servants. So our life of cross-bearing is, a, is being a disciple to him and service to others. So to serve others is seeing them as better than you, 
That's what a servant is, right? So com- coming in humility, coming underneath to love and serve others. So we're, this is self-sacrifice. What Jesus has talked about in four, chapter 14 already, the, the death to self. That's what humility is. Remember the parable of the wedding feast. Don't sit in the highest seat, sit in the lowest seat. Death to self, serving the other. So the other is given a higher position. Why? Because God has given them to me as a gift to love and serve. So now when we, when we rightly place our love where it's supposed to be as love as the disciple of Jesus, now then I'm able to see everyone around me as a gift to love and serve in humility as greater than myself so I can sacrifice, my, of my, sacrifice myself and love to them. That's my Christian saintly self. Unfortunately, we're still in our sinful flesh, and so we're constantly trying to serve ourselves. And that's where we see our sin, right? Which is precisely why Jesus is even giving this teaching. It hits, it hits you now. It hits us as we're reading the scriptures. As our, he's hitting us with the law to turn us from our self-discipling, our self-worship, and our, our, our self-pleasing way of seeing everyone around us, not as gifts, but as those that we can get something out of perhaps. And rather now we're seeing them all as gifts from God. Um, let's see. So uh, what is, so the cost of discipleship, my, my question number three there, what is the cost of being a disciple and have you paid it? So as you read the, the parable or, or the, the two metaphors that Jesus gives in verse 27 and following of counting the cost, where before you build a tower, sit down and count the cost um, to make sure, you, or if you're gonna build a house, make sure you sit down and count the cost or you're going, you're going to a war, uh, make sure you kind of see what you're getting yourself into because if you're gonna lose, you can go ahead and, and uh, seek for terms of peace before you get in, into that. What, what's the, what point is Jesus making here? In the context of the, the life of a disciple, what's Jesus saying, do you think? Before you set out to be a disciple, it's going to, there's going to be a cost. That is, it's going to take something from you. And what is it going to take? What is the cost that Jesus is saying here? You, was it? So I would, I would push it further, and not that it may cost you, it will. Because what, what, what it kills is the way that we would see our family apart from God. The job might be easier. So it kills a way, it kills my sinful flesh seeing my job as as whatever, this like daily drudgery thing that I have to go through so that I can eat or what. Now I'm able to see my job as a gift from him through which I'm able to serve my neighbor. Now I'm seeing my job as a gift. God has given me this way of providing for my family. Uh, Some vocations are certainly easier to see how you're helping the neighbor beyond you, you know, but like sometimes maybe you're in an office job and you're behind shuffling paperwork and running statistical analysis every day, whatever. Um, Maybe it's, you're so far removed from helping people that you don't always see it. But that's okay because you're still getting a paycheck, going home and putting a roof over over the family. 
feeding, feeding the family, right? So I'm able to see my, my job. It's, it's been killed for self-serving purposes. And now it's been given new life and new meaning as a gift. But, so, but my sinful flesh doesn't necessarily like that. So that's what's killed. What's, what's sacrificed is myself as God. And my whole, all of my relationships, everything is killed in that old way. Um, but, but then also, just in a first commandment way, when, you're, when, push, when push comes to shove and, and you're, you're put in a situation of having to choose between serving, what is clearly serving God and what is, what is not serving God, that's a cross. And you know, hey, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing here and it's going to, it's going to sting. There's going to be, there's going to be uh, a cross in this. Um, and so we pray for strength to bear that cross when the time comes because if it were easy, it would not be called a cross. Okay? Now, I do ask, like, have you paid it? So this, this picture so far in giving these metaphors, oh, then by, in verse 33 too. So therefore, any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Similar, similar language is when Jesus talks about the widow who gives the, the mites at the temple. And, and so Jesus says, like, oh, these, all these rich people have come and they've given of their wealth, but this poor widow has given, the Greek word is her life, her all, all that she had to live on. So the, the Greek says she's given her whole life. I forget the, the, the word. But then all she had to live on is actually all her life. She's given it all. Now that's a helpful way. And you've heard me, my, uh, my shtick on stewardship, um, like whether or not Jesus wants your 10% or whatever. Okay, fine. You, if you're looking for a number on giving stuff to the church, fine. Get 10% helpful um, just so you can kind of help do your budgeting and whatever. But really, all that you have belongs to God. He gave it to you anyway. Everything. And now you're using everything that you have in service to him, which is also meaning serving your neighbor. So now I'm, it, it disentangles like, well, I've got X amount of dollars left and I'm either going to feed my kids or put money in the offering plate, but I don't have enough to do both. Obviously, offering plate is like holier, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to feed the kids. They'll die, but it's okay because I did it in service to God. No, no. When you feed your kids... When you feed your kids, you're serving the guy. Who gave you the kids? Whose kids ultimately are they? They're his and he's given them to you to feed. So it, it disentangles this, like, this, this um, being in competition, but rather I'm seeing it all as a gift. So then I can now look back at the church and say, hey, I wanna, if I want to support the church with what I have, fine. You know, do it. It's, done in, it's done in full freedom then. Um, this all... Because it all is from him, and it's all to him. So now I'm renouncing all that I have because it doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm seeing it all as a gift that's now being used in service to him and service to my neighbor, not just my stuff, but my time, my entire person. Um, everything is ultimately his. So death to self, because I'm his disciple, and now as I've... As I've death, death to self, death to all my stuff, death to all my, my relationships, I'm turning to him. I've cut off all these things. And he then gives it all back to me as gift. 
So here's that, that person that you were married to before, this un, unhealthy view of marriage or whatever, I'm giving her back to you as a gift to love as Christ loves the church. Um, these children that you, that you didn't have the right view of how you should love and support them and care for them, I'm giving them back to you as a gift for you to love and serve. Um, your job that you hated for whatever reason, um, the people that you work with that you might not have cared about, all these, all these examples, everything, it's all dead. And he's giving them all back to you now as a gift. And you see everything differently. Now, you're still in your sinful flesh, and so that's the daily. We daily take up our cross and follow him. So we're daily having to go through this back and forth of the saint sinner, seeing all these things as um, self-serving, narcissistically, um, worshiping myself. And Jesus is daily putting putting that to death. But... He leaves us with nothing to hold or to look at except for his cross alone. And then he gives it all back to us as a, as a gift. So, so um, that's, that's one way to understand this life of discipleship, the cost of discipleship um, as seeing everything in our lives as a gift. But also there's a, it, it is a hard cost. Like the, the idea of, a, a cost of discipleship, that I'm going to have to give up a lot of things. This is going to be hard. I am going to, sacri- I'm going to have to make decisions in my life of sacrifice. And um, that is the Christian life. It is true. Jesus says it's, it's a cross. And so we recognize that we have to be faithful in this, in this life. But also, we're going to recognize that there is plenty of, of um, times of failure which is where to, to the trajectory of where Jesus is going here, just to put it in context. He's laid this high cost of disciple. What's the cost? All. And if you don't give all, what happens to you? Huh? Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. So, so Jesus all of a sudden becomes a culinary... Expert, expert here out of nowhere. So he's in the context of discipleship and now he's talking about salt. Uh, if you get a chance to go watch the, the Chosen, I know we talked about this before, but lately like the season three of The Chosen is out or whatever and um, it's got this, they do a good job of showing Jesus he'll be having a conversation, they ask him a question and he, he all of a sudden starts talking about totally different and the disciples are like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And like, we can relate to that in a way. We're reading, we're reading this and we're like, now he's talking about salt? What, so what, what do you, what's he talking about? What does he mean salt is good in the context of discipleship? Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, it's no good. What's the, what's the connection to discipleship? What, so, the, so, the, so you would say Christ is the salt? Or, or maybe, so especially in the context of discipleship, and, and as far as losing saltiness, what is the saltiness of the disciple? Faith in Jesus is everything. Without, without faith in Jesus, then there is no disciple, there's no discipling, right? There's no discipleship. Now, apparently, in the context, salt um, was this combination of chemicals, not in the way that we so easily grab something from Morton salt and pour it. So there's like all these other chemicals, and the actual sodium chloride, salt isn't preserved in such a way, the saltiness that we think of, like drains out of it, and it's just like a bunch of, a pile of chemicals that's just bad. 
and tastes bad and it's like poisonous and it damages stuff and you can't even like fertilize with it. You can't do anything with it except throw it in the manure pile. It does no, it does no, in fact, it's no good for the manure pile. I can't like turn this compost into something better. We just got to throw it away. So if, the, if my, what, makes my, what makes me as a disciple super salty is Jesus, faith, being, having faith in Jesus. And if I've, as a, a Christian who loses faith in Jesus, is really, what's the point? What's the value there? It's all, there's no point. You're, you're, worth, you're worth nothing to be thrown. And really, you can't, if you, so if my saltiness is about me having faith in Jesus and I've rejected Jesus, then how can I restore my faith in Jesus? Because I've rejected the thing that makes me salty. So this is harsh law to as you looking at yourself and saying, are you, are you a disciple in the way that you should be? Or have you ordered your life so that you've sacrificed all? Are you salty? Are you salty enough that everyone can see you and know your saltiness? I mean, this has it, it's good. It's a good, it's a good stern preaching of law. It's also helpful to remember though here as a side that what does salt do to become salty in its, of itself in the first place? If you ever like to personify salt, it's sitting there one day and saying, you know what I should do? Get saltier. It just doesn't, it's just made, it's created salty. And if something has lost its saltiness, it can't be made salty again. It's simply thrown out. The goal here is to have us, I would argue, to have us and the Pharisees and everyone who's hearing this thrown out. Because chapter 15, what's, what's all the lost stuff? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and which is just appetizers before the filet mignon of the prodigal son, who is lost in the pig pen. So that has us, it has us, it's killing, obviously killing the old sinful self, but ultimately dying to, we don't have anything to cling to in and of ourselves, nothing to hold up of, of our own to say, oh, look how much I've done, look how great I am. Um, and yet the law is requiring of it, laying it out there in front of us to do. And yet when we let the law do its thing, it's ultimately throwing us as not salty enough and thrown into the manure pile, which then ends up being the very place where Jesus goes after us. Um, here, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, as Jesus is repeating that from the parable of the sower. Now, before I get into, um, before I get into chapter 15, and we'll, we'll certainly be continuing that next week, but let's, let's take some questions on 14 and see. Yes, ma'am. So in Matthew, Jesus talks about as Christians, you are the salt of the earth. And then also uh, you are the light on a hill. Um, it's interesting as you think about salt, because I mean, at, literally, like, as I'm preparing these things, I, I, I live my life too, you know. And um, I was making eggs for the girls the other morning and Annabelle comes up and says, hey, dad, can I put the salt and pepper on the eggs today? I'm like, gosh, oh, She's got to learn sometime, trial and error, you know. And so, like, let's start with the pepper. 
So it puts a little bit of pepper on there. Okay, good. Now here's the salt. Just be really careful. It's going to come out too heavy, you know. And of course, you know, way too much comes out. Before I could even stop it, and just totally destroyed the whole meal of eggs were, were too, so too much salt is rejected. Now, I, I ran across that line of thinking in a, comment, a commentary on this. So the, the idea of thinking of a, the disciple in the world as those who are salty, made salty by faith in Jesus. Um, when I'm full of the saltiness of Jesus, what do you do when you put too much salt in your mouth? You spit it out. So what, hap- what does the world do to Jesus? So what, did, what, ha- what do we expect of those who actually have faith in Jesus? So a life of the disciple, a life of salt, a life made salty by faith in Jesus, it's death to self and love of the neighbor and life of serving Jesus. What do we expect but a cross, rejection from the world for, for faithfulness? It spit out. Uh, not that we, so again, not that we're, we're spitting out Jesus, but the idea of us being made salty by faith in Jesus is the thing that's kind of rejected by the world. Eyes, eyes kind of roll, you Christians, in your, in your Christian worldview of thinking that, that, that this world isn't billions of years old and that nothing else matters except for Jesus. I mean, you kind of roll, you, your eye rolling at these things right? Um, your, your priorities in life, the things that, when you get worked up because somebody's got a, a street sign that's trying to recalibrate the way your kids view marriage, and you're the bad guy because you're trying to stand up for marriage, and your eyes are rolled at you because you're trying to be faithful, and man, that's, that is light persecution. People rolling their eyes at you hasn't yet nailed you to anything, Right, but there's still. I mean, this this is the rejection by the world. There's a hand. Yes, Mr. Campbell. Well, without, yeah, so even if we think about the, the central view of salt for the Israelite in the context of Jesus, and really everybody prior to the invention of the refrigerator, if for us, we think about salt as it increases your chances of heart disease. So limit your sodium intake. Get the tomato sauce with less sodium in it, right? Uh, but so for them, they're thinking, that that's, if, if I want to have meat in the winter, I need to have salt. So salt has this, these preserving... Uh, life-extending qualities, so we're able to see salt as not only bringing flavor, but really bringing, new, like you said, preservation. Yeah. And yet, it's, uh, if you don't, so without salt, it destroys. Whatever, whatever's left, this, with the saltiness, is actually gone from whatever this sodium, previous, previously called salt, thing, it's going to destroy whatever it touches. Even the manure is, it's not good enough for the manure pile. <sighs> so now Jesus has us looking at ourselves as, as, as disciples who have rejected all. He's, he's, he's destroying all of our idols. 
having us, giving all of our neighbors back to us to love and serve, giving our lives back to us to love, um, but also showing us the life of discipleship has this great, this great cost of sacrificing all these things. And according to the law, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we, we deserve nothing but the manure pile. We are those who are to be cast out. And it is precisely into the, 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 the garbage dump where Jesus comes and grabs us in Luke 15. So next week, we'll look forward to these three lost things, the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the prodigal son, the, 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 part of the, the, the center and the meatiest chunk of, of Luke. So we look forward to that for next week. The Lord be with you.